Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to continue our study in this wonderful book, but we're in, this, in the midst of studying about the leaders that God has given to the church, and specifically the overseer, which we learned last week is a, a word that's used interchangeably with pastor and elder. We, we simplify that here at Cornerstone. Those who are leading the congregation are elders, and so we're learning about what an elder must be. And so 1 Timothy chapter 3 and I'll read verses 1 through 7. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll study the text together. So Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we go any further? Lord, we do thank you for your word and we pray now as we come to this portion of our worship that you would give us the focus and the attention that is necessary to, uh, to learn, to sit under the preaching of the word and receive it. And as you're moving in our midst through this, you're instructing us as a church about what our leaders must be. And that serves a dual purpose. It, it serves the purpose of instructing the congregation on what must be uh, the responsibility and qualification of leaders, but also what men in the congregation should be striving for. I pray that you would teach us, that you would equip us, that you would call to our mind uh, the things that we've seen in our lives that are not a reflection of this text and help our hearts to be rightly corrected about what your word says, not what we've experienced. But I do pray that you would strengthen us as a church, that you would bless us as a church with faithful, competent, godly leaders. And let this sermon, let this time be toward that end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for some of us, the discussion of church leadership is kind of hard to get excited about. And I'm not implying that the topic is boring. I don't think it's boring necessarily. I'm referring to the fact that many of us have had bad experiences with leadership, and it has left us with some trust issues, some scars, if you will. We've seen authority abused. We've seen leaders take advantage of their people. We've seen corruption at the top and we can't unsee it. And the truth is, we live in a world filled with corruption, and in a world filled with leaders and corruption, we see a world filled with a corruption of leadership. 
from government leaders who repeatedly lie to the American people under oath, to presidents who abuse the power of their office to keep their friends and family from being held accountable. And can you even begin to number the amount of whistleblower stories we've heard about in the last four years where lower-level lower employees are calling out their executives because of all of their shady deals? I mean, we just live in a world filled with corruption, and it points to the top. But this is not just a headline news issue. This is something we've experienced ourselves. Some of us have had bosses take advantage of us. Some of us have had supervisors or managers take credit for our work. Some of us have watched church leaders take advantage of their people, get away from whatever scrutiny was being thrown at them. We've seen this happen. And because of that, many of us harbor a form of skepticism of leadership that has been born out of our experience. You don't have to raise your hand or shake your head, but you know what we're talking about. But on top of all of our experience, on top of those negative situations that we've faced, the scriptures show us repeatedly that God wants his church to have leaders. We talked about this last week. God wants his church to have pastors. God has ordained that his people be led by competent and faithful men, going all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way until today. God wants us to see leadership as a good thing. And that's one of the reasons why he places such high standards upon the character of church leaders even over and against the skills of those leaders. Last week, we looked at the six positive characteristics of what an elder must be. But I don't know about you, but when you're looking at something and you're, you're, you're learning about what it is, it's also important for us to learn what it is not. Right? It helps with the definition. If something is this, then help us to understand what it is not, and it narrows down our understanding. And so as important as it is for us to see those positive characteristics of leaders, it's even stronger when we include what an elder must not be. So starting in verse 3, Paul gives us four negative characteristics or four things that must not be present in those who pastor the church. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning in verse 3. So let's look at what he must not be. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Let's just take those phrases one at a time. He must not be a drunkard. Now we all know the, the dangers associated with too much alcohol. And if you don't know that, then don't learn by experience. Ask someone wiser and more experienced than yourself. Alcohol can easily impair one's ability to think and speak and act normally. It's an addictive substance. It, is, it has the ability to take over a person's life, and it has caused an immense amount of destruction in our world. The Bible warns us over and over again about the dangers associated with drunkenness, or what we would term the abuse of alcohol, and that warning is being reflected here. And if you're not an elder and you're saying, oh, well, I can embody that, that's no big deal. No, the Bible makes very clear that none of God's people should be characterized in this way. But especially this can't be present in an elder. A drunkard is a person, and that's just the word that is translated here. A drunkard is a person who habitually drinks too much. And Paul says that such a man is not fit for the role of an elder. Now, the Bible repeatedly condemns 
drunkenness. And I'm not, I can't give you a whole list of all of the verses that address this. I'll give you a few. Habakkuk 2, 15 and 16, Proverbs 20 and verse 1, condemning drunkenness. And the Bible also contrasts the controlling effects of alcohol with being filled with the Spirit of God in Ephesians 5.18. Those two things are contrasted. One is being filled with the Spirit of wine, and the other is being filled with the Spirit of God. There's a reason we call alcohol spirits. The life of a drunkard is a life of addiction. It is a form of slavery to sin, and Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6. He even lists habitual drunkenness as those who are excluded from the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians 5.11 that for a person to live in this way, to be a habitual drunkard, is grounds for removal from church membership. So the Bible has a lot to say about drunkenness, a habitual drunkenness. But if you know your Bible well, you, you know there's another side of the story in Scripture with regard to alcohol. The Bible makes clear that alcohol can be abused, and it warns against it over and over again, but the Bible also makes clear that alcohol can be used in righteous ways that honor the Lord and represent His blessings when it is enjoyed in moderation and with the right motives. Alcohol is used in the Old Testament sacrificial system as a drink offering. The priests even had a supply of wine that they were in charge of within the temple, and they were not allowed to drink wine while they were on duty, but it was understood that it was part of the blessing of God to them for them to consume that in their regular um, eating and drinking. Um, when, we, when we see more of what the scriptures actually tell us about wine as a, a gift, we, we see things like wine being recommended and encouraged in various celebrations within the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you even see Jesus choosing wine to be one of the two symbols in the Lord's Supper that reminds us of his death and the covenant that he made between us and God. Throughout Scripture, wine comes with this warning with regard to drunkenness, but this understanding that it is a blessing from God to be enjoyed by his people and to be seen even as a sign of prosperity among God's people. It's even referred to when the Old Testament prophets forecast the, the end times and there's going to be wine flowing down from the hills. It's a sign of, of celebration and prosperity. So make sure that you've got this picture in your mind that is thoroughly biblical here. The Bible also tells us that, that alcohol is a gift from God when consumed in moderation. Later in this very book, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is going to instruct Timothy to use wine for medicinal purposes. He says, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And so here's the point. Wine is not the problem. Alcohol is not the problem. The abuse of it is the problem. Every gift from God should be enjoyed in moderation and with a heart of gratitude. Otherwise, the gift can become more important than the giver. So Paul's instruction here is not forbidding elders the use of alcohol altogether, but it is encouraging temperance and moderation so that wine doesn't become a hindrance to ministry. And for some of you who weren't here, 
the, the, the six positive characteristics, in large part, they all have something to do with the fact that an elder must have mastery over himself. The elder must be able to exercise self-mastery or self-control. And the same is true with regard to this. That same level of self-mastery that we talked about last week should be shown in this area as well when it comes to alcohol. Now, the next prohibition... I think it's closely associated this one because excessive drinking often leads to violent behavior. And Paul says not only must an elder not be a drunkard, but he must not be violent and prone to quarreling. And that word violence there, it it literally is, is an aggressive term. It's not just a person having angry feelings in their heart, but this is referring to a, an outburst of aggression. This could be expressed in a number of ways, such as bullying or verbal abuse or physical aggression. In other words, this is not just that type of anger and frustration that a man may feel in his heart from time to time, but an inability to control oneself when angry. Same concept, self-mastery. What are you going to do with the frustration and anger that you feel? And he says, not only are they not to be violent, but they're actually to be characterized as gentle. And the word gentle there, it it means gentle. It means kind and forbearing. It, It means yielding in a way. It means that an elder should be a reasonable man with a gentle spirit. And listen, there are times in ministry when disagreements about decisions or about doctrine can threaten the unity of the body. And if an elder is always leaning in the direction of a fight, if an elder is constantly loving controversy and just wants to call everyone out, then having that man in leadership with that attitude, it can be a recipe for disaster. An elder must be reasonable, prone to gentleness, not violent outbursts. Wisdom demands that leaders should be level-headed in the face of challenges, and this is especially true for those who lead the church. There's a time for leaders also to be strong and decisive. In fact, I would say that there's always a time. We, we should always be strong and decisive in the face of errors. We should, we should be strong and decisive in the face of threats to the church or the unity of the church. There is a time when elders must plant their feet firmly in the truth of God's word and not budge an inch. So gentle dis, gentleness does not mean compromise, but it means that we must hold the truth of the faith with a gentle spirit and without a violent attitude. Isaiah 42 verse 3 speaks of the Lord's gentleness when it says that he will not break a bruised reed nor snuff out a faintly burning wick. And the point is that an elder's temper should strive to be like that of his master. Not violent, but gentle. He must also not be a lover of money. Now some some of your Bibles may translate this as he must be free from the love of money. And, and that, that phraseology is going to actually pick up what Paul says later in 1 Timothy 6.10 when he warns us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? So like alcohol, the problem here is not money itself, but a love of it, an abuse of it. A lover of money is one who is characterized by an excessive desire to acquire wealth. They're always looking for a way to save money, to get money, to swindle money, to keep from having to spend money. It's the overarching motivation for a person's life. And Paul says that a man who is characterized in that way is not fit to lead the church. 
Now, Jesus made it clear. He taught a lot on this particular subject. He, he made it clear that one cannot serve both God and money. And this doesn't just include elders. This is for all of us. We can't serve both God and money. And the reason why is because one love will tend to drive out the other love. One master will take priority over the other. The, the love of money is a dangerous love. So dangerous that we're usually blind to it. Being greedy, being materialistic, being covetous, it's one of those sins that, that we don't readily see in ourselves. We see it in other people, but we don't see it in ourselves. Which is why Jesus says in Luke 12, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Be on guard. What are you, why, are you, why are you having to be on guard against something? Because you're not expecting it. When was the last time you confessed your idolatry of money? When was the last time you confessed your greed or your covetousness or your materialism? When was the last time you heard anybody confess that? It just doesn't happen that often. Why? Because it's one of those sins that we don't tend to see in ourselves. It's one of those sins that we tend to be blind to. I mean, we, we will say, no, I don't have a problem with that. Those really wealthy people over there, they have a problem with that, but not me. Jesus says, be on guard against your infatuation with wealth and money. Don't let this become the stumbling block that corrupts your view of life and eternity. Uh, he says one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The idea there is that the, the man's whole life is focused on acquiring wealth and maintaining wealth. A love of money can cause a man or a woman to think that the true meaning of life is found in the abundance of one's possessions. And this cannot be a characteristic found in an elder. The true meaning of life is to know God and to make Him known. The true meaning of life is to bring glory to God. And we do this with our money by using it to bless others, not by storing it up as though it's the most valuable thing on earth. And again, money is not the problem. Having money is not the problem. Even being wealthy is not the problem. Loving money. Having, having an inordinate love and desire for money, that's the problem. Viewing wealth as the most important thing in life, that is the problem. So all of these things that we've seen, these, this prohibition against drunkenness, this prohibition against violence and money idolatry, they're all aimed to show that an elder must be a man who knows how to control himself. He knows how to use the gifts of God as they were intended. And he has learned the true meaning of life and has put up guardrails in his heart so that he can stay faithful to the shepherd's calling. His personal life must be a solid reflection of his commitment to Christ and his fitness for the office of an elder. And this is important for us to know as a church, as we consider elders in the future, as we consider additional leaders for our body, it's not enough that they went to seminary and they can preach. This says nothing about that. Those might be important characteristics and an important part of their experience. But the focus is on character. And when we ask questions of those men, the questions have to be related to character. Now, that's not all Paul talks about. He doesn't just say what a, an elder must be and what he must not be. He also says that an elder must be a competent leader or manager, and he, he focuses in on how he manages his home. Look at verse 4. He must manage his own household well. 
the Puritans referred to the family as the little church. And, and they're saying a lot in that phrase, but one of the things is that they're recognizing that one of the proving grounds for a man's capacity for leadership is, is how he manages his household. How does a man manage his household? To manage, it, just, it means to be in charge of directing and ordering the household. It means exercising appropriate authority over one's household, which involves relationships, family relationships, as well as property and other responsibilities. So this is not just focused on your relationship with your wife and your children, but it's, it's focused on the entire management of the home. And that's a reflection of what we see in the church, because a pastor or an elder is not just in charge of uh, working through relationships, but we have, we di- we have decisions that we make. Right? There's, there's a financial interest. There's a, a doctrinal interest that is involved. There's, there's all kinds of different things. And managing a household is not just one relationship, it's multiple relationships. And an elder proves himself. He must be faithful and competent as a leader of his household to prove that he can manage the church of God as well. Now, notice in the text it says that he must manage his household well. Well, W-E-L-L. It does not say he must manage his household perfectly. I think there's two, there, there's, there's two ditches that we could fall into. Either not really caring at all how a, uh, an elder manages his household or caring so much about how he manages his household that we scrutinize in unbiblical ways. Does that make sense? Maybe you've experienced both at some point in your life. His management must be good and appropriate to the standard of one who oversees the church of Christ. Now, I point this out because it is often the case that pastors live, uh, live lives that are scrutinized in a way that is unreasonable and unbiblical. Some church members are eager to find any problem that they can, and when they do that, they want to criticize the pastor and undermine their leaders. I've been in churches where that was common. Perhaps you have as well. That hasn't been my experience here. Praise God. But that tendency might be in your heart. And look, you need to know this about us. I remember years ago, I was um, meeting with some, some folks, and we were talking about um, a particular aspect of relational dynamics. And I just happened to mention, you know, well, when my, my wife and I have a disagreement, and this is how we handle it. And I looked over, and that person was, was like visibly emotionally moved by that because they just assumed that my wife and I never had disagreements. Like everything in the pastor's house was perfect. Let me just tell you, I love my wife and my children, and I believe we have a well-ordered household, but we're not perfect. An elder experiences brokenness in their lives and in their homes just like you do. So the qualification is not that an elder manages his household perfectly, but how does, the, how does an elder manage those problems when they arise in the household? Do we, do we handle those problems in such a way that we honor the Lord and we are being faithful to Scripture? Does the elder shepherd the hearts of his wife and children and uh, you know, direct the financial needs of his home and the upcare of his home in a way that is biblically consistent, in a way that reflects an ability to manage the household of God? That's what we're looking for here. And then it goes on and it says that he must do so with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
keeping his children submissive. And this next phrase, it, it, it comes from a military context, the idea of certain ranks. You have certain people in authority, and you have under others that are under that authority. That's, that's the language, that's the context, that's the term here. But please don't think drill sergeant. Think more of the relationship between Christ and his disciples. Jesus gave clear instruction, clear direction. He would correct where they needed to be corrected. But he showed patience and love toward those under his authority. Jesus even taught his own disciples, don't look to the world for patterns of authority. Don't look to the world and say, oh, I'm a leader. I can lord my authority over others. In Christ's kingdom, authority operates differently. And it looks a lot like a servant. But the responsibility for an elder for a father to direct his household and teach his children submission, that is an important part of this responsibility. An elder must be able to parent his children to be respectful of authority, especially his authority. He should teach them to be well-disciplined and faithful in their age-appropriate tasks and responsibilities. He is the head of the household and must exercise godly authority to manage that household. In other words, the inmates are not running the asylum. And that should be visible. Yeah, that was, yeah. Every now and then I'll throw something in there. It's kind of funny. You can laugh. It's fine. And, and the point that Paul is making here is if a man can't do this, if a man can't manage his household, how can he be expected to manage the church of God? He must show an ability to lead his family well. He has to have a vision for the growth and maturity of his family, and he's working to teach and train his family toward a deeper and more faithful walk with Christ. He's also able to resolve conflicts in the family and, and make complicated financial decisions and build unity and maintain godly love and respect at home because the home is the proving ground for leadership in the church. All of these things must be there. So let's recap really quickly. He must des desire the office with at least something of a robust understanding of what the office entails. He must be a man of exceptional character, a list of things he must be and things he must not be. He must be able to manage his household well. And the next thing we see is that he must be mature in the faith. Look at verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, when Paul says he must not be a recent convert, the word there is neophyte. They're new to the faith. And he doesn't give us all of the qualifications. He just says he must not be a recent convert because the temptation is toward pride and conceit. Now, I'll just give you a little bit of my own history, and I've shared this with people plenty of times, but my first position to serve in ministry was as a youth pastor in a small Baptist church in my hometown of Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, and before the church offered me the position, I was working as a pastoral assistant and a youth intern at another larger church in town. And, and the way that these small towns work, you may have experienced this at some point, but the larger churches would often get phone calls from smaller churches, and the larger church pastors would get those phone calls, and the church would say, hey, we're looking for a youth pastor. Do you have anybody that you might recommend for that role? And well, my youth pastor that I was interning under, he got that phone call one day and he said, yeah, I got a guy that I think would be great for that role. So um, I became a youth pastor. And I had only been a believer for just a little over a year at that time. I was in college. I was 22 years old. 
I became a believer, and within about a year, almost a year and a half, I was called to be a youth pastor in this church. And it seems to me now, looking back, and for years, seems obvious that the leaders of that small church were not very concerned about this stipulation. Because I was definitely a neophyte. I was a recent convert to the faith, and by the standard of Scripture, I probably should not have been called to that office. But in God's grace, the experience didn't fill me with pride. It actually had the opposite effect on me. It filled me with great humility and a recognition of the fact that I was not ready. And so within a year, I had enrolled in seminary so that I could be better equipped to serve the church because I believed that to be the calling that God had placed on me. Now again, Paul doesn't put age limits on this qualification. He doesn't say you have to be a believer for a year or two years or six months or anything like that. But he does imply something very clear here. He must not be a recent convert, but he must be a convert. <laughs> exactly. He must be a convert. He must give good and clear evidence of conversion and have a genuine and growing faith in Christ. That's, an, that's a priority. And if we can't see that, then I don't know what we're doing. But not only must he be a convert, he must also show a level of spiritual maturity that is consistent with the office that he seeks to hold. And there are a lot of reasons why this is important. He must have a level of spiritual maturity. If, if he's immature and doesn't understand the demands of the Christian life and ministry, he's going to be very little help to his people and probably not have much longevity in that ministry. If he doesn't have something of an above-average knowledge of Scripture and theology, he's going to be prone to lead people astray. But Paul tells us here that he's also going to be susceptible to pride and conceit, which places him in grave danger of falling into the condemnation of the devil. Twice, in verse 6 and verse 7, he refers to the devil and the devil's condemnation or the devil's snares. This is a really important thing. But what does that mean? What is he talking about? Well, let's think about it. The, the condemnation means judgment. So spiritual maturity helps to prevent pride. The more we learn and the more we grow and the more we experience, if, if, if things are working rightly, it reveals how much we don't know and how much we don't understand and how much we haven't experienced. It should produce humility, not pride. Spiritual maturity helps to prevent pride. And that's important because pride and conceit open the door for the devil. Paul uses this word condemnation, which implies judgment. And here's the way I understand this verse. The point is that an immature elder may be tempted to sin. He may be more vulnerable to the devil's schemes. And the end result will not just be that he leads God's people astray, but he will receive the judgment reserved for false teachers. It was James that tells us, not many of you should be eager to be teachers because we will be judged with a greater strictness. And that's what this warning is about here. An immature leader who doesn't know what he doesn't know can be puffed up with pride and conceit, leading people astray and falling under the judgment reserved for false teachers. 
And this is not the only time Paul mentions the devil in this passage. Look at verse 7. He must have a strong testimony. An elder must have a strong testimony because, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So this is talking about those outside of the church. This is talking about our testimony with unbelievers, with neighbors and coworkers, and all of that. And, and it helps us to avoid the snare of the devil. What is the snare of the devil? Well, the snare is not referring to the drum. It's referring to a trap. It's referring to uh, something that would lure us in and trap us. And that's what temptation is presented as throughout Scripture. When, when, dev- when Satan sets a trap for us, he dangles something in front of us that lures us in, and by the time we bite, we're caught. The story of Scripture actually begins with a trap. Begins with a snare. The story of Scripture begins with a trap set by the devil all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they faced temptation. They didn't expect it. Satan pointed out something that was appealing. He twisted the truth of God's Word. He led them into sin. And you, we, we experience the fall today. But the same thing is true. That same temptation, that same pattern of temptation is true for us today. Temptation is when Satan seeks to lure us into sin by dangling something in front of us that appeals to our flesh, or by dangling something in front of us on our phones, or whatever the case might be, and in the end, this thing that our flesh desires will lead us away from faithfulness to Christ, and we are ensnared at that point. Thomas Brooks wrote, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison. To present the sweet and the pleasure and the profit and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. Satan is a cheat, giving us an apple in exchange for paradise. Temptations from sin don't just come to elders, by the way. They come to all of us. We all face these temptations and they come from outside of us from the world and the devil, as well as inside of us, from, the, from our own corrupt and sinful hearts, the Scriptures tell us. And an elder who fails to maintain a testimony of faithfulness inside as well as outside the church is particularly vulnerable to the snares of the devil. An elder who is a hypocrite, here's the logic here, an elder who is a hypocrite, he puts on a a good brave face here and can have all the conversations and quote all the right authors and reference all the right books and if he's Baptist he can throw in a Spurgeon quote every now and then, right? He's, He's doing the job here but when he leaves he's a completely different person. That's a hypocrite. And an elder who's a hypocrite might be respected inside the church, but bring shame to the name of Christ outside the church. And in the devil's eagerness to discredit the gospel, he exposes the hypocrisy of the minister. And when this happens, the snare is set. The trap is done. We've seen this happen time and time and time again. And so, what do we do? We, we take care of not only our presence in the church, but also our testimony outside of the church. One of the ways that we avoid this temptation is that we're conscious of our testimony, how we carry ourselves in the world, how we conduct ourselves with respect, and how we display our testimony of faithfulness to Christ outside of the four walls of this building. So, 
let me try to conclude all of this, a two-part sermon. Here we go. In all of this, I hope it is easy to see that the overriding concern in the New Testament regarding church leadership is for faithful and godly men to serve as elders. Charisma plays little role in these qualifications. Extraordinary skills are absent from this list. But a man who understands the responsibility and still desires the office, that's what we're looking for. A man who has an exceptional character and knows how to exercise self-controls in a a variety of ways. A man who faithfully leads and manages his home. A man who displays spiritual maturity. And a man who has earned a good reputation both inside as well as outside of the church. Those are the qualities that matter the most when electing an elder. Now, I'm going to close with something a little bit different. I mentioned this last week. Last week, I talked about the fact that the standards that are set here are high, and these are standards set by Christ himself, and that church leaders are ultimately striving to be like Christ in the way we serve. So in regard to all of these qualifications, I'll add a few things that we see in Scripture. And I'll just list out five, because we could do this all day. Here are five ways that leaders should strive to be like Christ in the way that we lead. Number one, leaders must be filled with the Spirit of God like Jesus. Leaders must be filled with the Spirit of God like Jesus. At the beginning of his ministry, you may remember this, before anything was really made public, the Bible tells us that Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God and then the Spirit led him out into the wilderness and it was there that he was tempted by the devil. You remember that story. And then along the way, we see similar language of the, the, the Spirit of God being upon him and guiding him and leading him. He followed the Spirit's guidance into the harshest environment that he had ever faced to that point, and he experienced the toughest test that he had ever faced to that point. He was being guided by the Spirit of God. Now, the primary way that the Spirit guides leaders today is not through mystical means, We've talked about this and we've taught on this. The primary way that the Spirit of God leads the people of God today is not through mystical means, but through the revealed Word of God, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Leaders must be filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, and that means that we are filled, led, and directed by the Word. Number two, leaders must be faithful in preaching the Word like Jesus. Faithful in preaching the Word. I tend to think about the Sermon on the Mount because it's the largest single block of sermon text that we have that Jesus spoke at one given time. And in, in it, Jesus explains so much. He explains the Christian life. He explains ministry. He explains relationships. He explains how the law of God applies to our lives. He explains so much. He spoke with clarity to simple minded people about really deep subjects. And when they walked away from him, they were amazed at his understanding and how he spoke with authority. Jesus was a powerful preacher. He taught the truth in a way that exhibited a deep knowledge of Scripture, but also he spoke with authority. And it was almost as though he could just turn on a dime and, and, and there was a story, an illustration from life that he could just draw into it. He was a master teacher. And I don't 
proclaim myself to be a master teacher in that vein at all, but I'm striving to be a better teacher because elders must be able to teach in a similar way. And we have to study and know God's word to proclaim God's word with boldness and authority and illustrate God's word to the best of our ability so that we can help God's people walk in faithfulness to it. Number three, leaders must be compassionate like Jesus. And we see this reflected even in the word gentle today. How many times did Jesus show compassion to those caught in sin? Or how many times did he show patience to those who were slow to believe? I mean, he was, he was blasted by the religious leaders of his day because he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He even wept over the unbelief of his own people. Jesus shows compassion at every turn. And leaders today must show compassion as well. We must be patient with new believers and gentle with hurting believers and open-hearted toward those in need of salvation. And we must be able to do this while being committed to honoring the truth and not compromising God's word. Leaders must be compassionate. Leaders must also be fearless like Jesus. In the same way that you see this abundance of compassion towards those in need, you also see this fearless willingness to confront those who were hypocrites. I mean, if, if, if you see Jesus in a confrontation, there's a Pharisee, a scribe, or a Sadducee on the other side of that. And he's confronting them because they're leading God's people astray. And he warns them about the dangers of doing that. He was absolutely fearless. At one point, the disciples even pull him aside and say, do you realize that you've offended the Pharisees? And Jesus says something to the effect of, well, there's more coming. Yes, I know that I offended them. And, and he tells them, don't be taken in by their teaching. Don't let the leaven of the Pharisees corrupt you too. Jesus was fearless. Not only did he face those religious leaders, but he was fearless in the face of political leaders. He was fearless. Church leaders need to be fearless as well. As we declare the truth and expose sin and, and point for people to take refuge in Christ alone, there must be a fearlessness to our ministry and our preaching. And then lastly, we Leaders must be a servant like Jesus. We see that somewhat reflected in this qualification as well. We must be servants like Jesus. It was Jesus who took the position of a slave when he washed the disciples' feet, and then he told the disciples, you're going to do the same for one another. And it didn't end with them. It didn't end with them. But there's no better example of his servant heart than when he went to the cross in our place. He lived a righteous life for us, then took our sin upon his shoulders. And in his death, he paid the price for our freedom. And then he gave to us his righteousness so that we could be reconciled to God. No, elders cannot save you. We didn't die in your place, but we must adopt Christ's heart of service in order to care for the flock. So, may God bless the preaching of his word and may God bless us as a church in the leaders that we appoint. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for this time in it and I pray that you would fashion our hearts around this instruction. I pray that you would help us as a church to be filled with faithful men and women who serve in various capacities but especially for our leaders. Lord, we pray for strength and wisdom and maturity. We pray for all of these qualifications to be not only present, but growing. And help us to be the kind of church that demands this, that expects this, that, um, 
that, that looks for these things, not just the things that we might be interested in, those outward gifts, but also the character of a man's heart and his home. So Lord, teach us as a people and help us to have a deeper appreciation for your leadership and let it be reflected in those who serve here. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.